the reading today is from Acts 2, verses 1 through 13. Pentecost. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, What does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, They've had too much wine. Thank you, Janet. Uh, heroic pronunciation there. That was great. We began uh, two Sundays ago to look at the book of Acts, the history book of the Christian church. If you go to the New Testament, the first four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are eyewitness accounts, uh, a series essentially of anecdotes about what the, the first disciples saw and heard, what Jesus said when he was challenged, how he taught, how he performed miracles, what he said about himself. It's a collection of all that, four different perspectives on one man. When we get to the book of Acts, though, the tenor changes. It is now talking about the human reaction to Jesus' life, death, resurrection. The book of Acts begins as a history book. Uh, the author, the same person who wrote Luke, says explicitly that he's going to write down everything that happened. And the apostles are gathered there. They have just watched Jesus return to the Father, where, as he promises, he's going to send the Holy Spirit. He tells them to go back to Jerusalem and wait 50 days until the Holy Spirit will come. That's what Pentecost means, 50 days. To pray, to study the Scripture as he taught them. Study the Old and what was beginning to be the New Testament, the accounts of Jesus, and look for Jesus in everything. As we saw last week, they studied the Psalms, David's Psalms and saw how they pointed to Jesus and explained what must happen. And here we go, finally, 50 days later, Pentecost, just as Jesus promises, had promised, he sends the Holy Spirit, the Counselor, the one that is going to bind them together and empower them as the Christian church. So let's have a look at that. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. As I said, Pentecost from uh, the, the 
word for 50, Penta, uh, is 50 days after Jesus' crucifixion. A time of preparation, primarily of prayer and reading scripture to understand the details of who Jesus is. And they were all together. We saw it was more than just the apostles. There were actually uh, about 150 people. Those that had personally witnessed Jesus' teaching, who had followed him to Jerusalem, who had uh, been part of his entourage, who had provided food and, and housing, who had witnessed everything that he did with the apostles at their center. Verse 2. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. The blowing of a violent wind. In Scripture, in the Old Testament, God's Spirit is often associated with wind. In Hebrew, the word for spirit, ruach, means breath. God speaking. In Genesis, when God creates everything, his spirit, his breath, hovers over the unformed chaos of the primordial world and brings order to it as God speaks it into structure and into order. God's breath is what moves in the world, and that breath is what brings life. When God creates human beings, he breathes ruach into the still lifeless but formed body of Adam, and Adam comes to life, spiritual life. In Greek, the word is puma, from which we get pneumatic. It means air or wind. And of course, uh, we get our word spirit from the Latin word spiritus. They all mean the same thing. God's breath, God's life, God's power active into the world. Creating, restoring, giving life to that which is lifeless. So this is the living breath of God being breathed into the apostles who will form the church. This is the church coming to life. Just as God's breath formed the world and gave life to the world, just as God's breath gave life to Adam, here God's breath gives life to the Christian church. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Once again, the fire, another symbol of the presence of God. God himself is not fire. God, the Bible says, is pure spirit, immaterial. But like fire, where he is, where he shows up, things change. God's breath, his spirit, his power, sets the world on fire, purifies, cleanses. If you go to the Old Testament, when God uh, creates a relationship with uh, Abraham, creates a covenant, he does so with a pot of fire. When God begins a relationship with Moses and the people of Israel, he appears in a bush. As a, the bush burns, God's fire is present, although the bush is not consumed. And when God establishes a covenant with Israel, 
makes them his chosen people. In the desert at Sinai, he descends as fire onto the mountain. So terrifying that the Israelites don't want to go anywhere near him and send Moses in their place. So holy that any one or thing or animal that touched the mountain would die. So you have all these ideas coming together. Symbols and metaphors of God's presence to show that the Holy, Spirit, the Holy Spirit is present at the birth of the, uh, the Christian church just as it has been present at the birth of everything else. The creation of the world, creation of man, the creation of every new Christian. In the Gospel of John, John says this. Well, this is Jesus speaking through John. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So here you see what happens when the Holy Spirit shows up. Creation of the world, creation of human beings, bringing them to spiritual life, creation of a new Christian, becoming Spirit-filled, being born again through the Spirit, and at Pentecost the creation and birth of a new community, a new way of being in the world, the Christian church. Not a social club, not a collection of goody-two-shoes that get together to show how wonderful they are to each other, but a group of strangers who, through Christ, and now the power of the Holy Spirit, form a new community, a new family, a new creation, supernaturally empowered to do God's will in the world. That's what Pentecost is all about. So what does that look like? How does the Holy Spirit reveal His presence? How does the power get expressed? Verse 4. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there are more than the apostles there, but the fire descends on the apostles because they are the ones who are going to preach and witness to Christ. And what does it empower, what does the Holy Spirit empower them to do? To speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. You'll hear a lot of things if you are in the Christian world for very long. You'll know that uh, Christians are uh, divided on what it means to speak in tongues. There are whole denominations that put the focus of their worship and their prayer in speaking in tongues, which certainly to me, when I've attended those services, sounds like a babble. People just making strange noises. Uh, maybe you guys have different ideas. I don't want to be too uh, divisive. 
But when you look here at the beginning of the Christian church, when you look at what the power of the Spirit was actually there for, it was sent so that the, the apostles could witness the gospel in all the languages of the world. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. There it is. The significance of tongues, speaking in tongues under the power of the Holy Spirit, is primarily to spread the gospel, the witness to Jesus Christ, to all the nations of the world, in every language of the world. That's the purpose. That's why the gift is given. Each one of them heard them speaking in his own tongue. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. So, whatever else you can say about tongues, its primary purpose is to enable the gospel to be spoken in all the languages of the world, to spread to every part of the world, so that language is no longer a barrier to witnessing to Jesus Christ. And by the way, there's a lovely word there. We hear them declaring the wonder, the wonders of God in our own tongues. Wonders there is the Greek word megaleia. Megadeeds. The apostles were there to witness the megadeeds of God expressed through Jesus to the entire world. That was their job description. That was what the church was established for. And that's why the Holy Spirit was given. To ensure that there would be no barrier between God and man. That there would be perfect understanding and translation. Perfect clarity. What is happening here is actually a reversal of something that happened in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis. There is a place where all the languages of the world came into being in order to prevent the world speaking as one, the Tower of Babel. And I want to read that story to you so you can understand how what is happening at Pentecost is the reversal of what was originally a curse. This is Genesis 11. This is after Noah. This is after the flood. This is, this is after God has promised never to wipe the world clean and start again. So this is the beginning of human history. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. 
They use brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, If, as one people, speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That's why it was called Babel. Babel sounds like the Hebrew word for confusion. That's why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Now, when you first read that, certainly when I first read that, that sounds like a um, sort of a mean God, petty, sticking his fingers into earthly matters, confusing people, separating them. You think of all the wars and problems that we've had because people can't communicate with each other. Why would God do such a thing? Well, the key to the story is in the middle there. Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that we may make a name for ourselves. The point is that once human beings orient their life around anything else other than God, that's where all the problems come from. God is the source of life. If you start orienting or building an existence on anything else other than God, it will fall apart. It is where sin comes from. It is where conflict, all the pettiness of the human heart, the cruelty, the viciousness, the slaveries, all the things that we see in the world, the godless things in the world, they all come from people following the conflicted and contradictory desires of their heart. And the result is pain and suffering and misery in individual lives, and in the world. And God saw that a whole world dedicated to glorifying itself, filled with people dedicated to making a name for themselves, would be a world filled with cruelty. A world which was darkened. A world which had no grace in it, had no hope or a future. One of the reasons the Bible says that God brought the flood was that the people became so vicious with each other that God could barely stand to look at humanity. It had become so ugly. And that was in a few short generations. What would a whole planet of people devoted to their own glory and their own greed and their own desires separate from God, what could that end up looking like? And God says, it is too horrible to, too horrible to happen, too horrible to comprehend, 
It is something that he cannot allow because it would mean that we would have a world filled with darkness and hopelessness. And so the original curse, the original confusion, was there as a protection to limit the final ability of the world to create something without God at its center. Because a world without God is a world that is dead, if it's true that he is the source of life. So now, in Pentecost, that curse is reversed. Why? Because in Jesus, a new principle has come into the world. A new leader. A new king. A new foundation. A new way of living. Based on the Holy Spirit and grounded in God's goodness. And therefore, it is no longer necessary to have all these different languages. Now, the gospel can unite the peoples of the world. And that is what is happening. And that's the goal and the purpose of the Christian church. To be the instrument of bringing all peoples under the head of one king. One kingdom. So that people on earth do God's will, not their own will. So that we can pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Everyone united, a life now built on God's agenda, God's principles, God's goodness, and God's spirit. A life of hope that has grace in it and forgiveness in it. A life where you're defined by your future with God and not by the bad things that have happened to you in the past or the mistakes you've made or the failures. A whole new beginning. That's what the gospel is all about. And it starts at Pentecost. The curse is undone, and beginning in Jerusalem, the peoples of the world start to be pulled together and made one. Great theology, but what has it got to do with us? Here we are this morning, sitting in this room. What does this beautiful but ancient story have to do with us? Well, what does the Holy Spirit actually do? When he comes down, when he enters a group of people, when he starts the church, when he enters one of us and, and makes us a Christian. Well, his holiness, God's holiness, destroys sin. Where God is, sin cannot be. That's why it's appropriate that he shows up as a purifying fire. God is perfect in his goodness, in his justice, in his holiness. And sin is disease, corruption, rebellion, everything that is not of God. And so what happens when the two come together? It's like the sun driving out darkness. Where the sun is, you can't have darkness. Where God is, there can be no sin. Because he's omnipotent, and sin is not. And so that's the first thing that the Holy Spirit does. 
It makes people holy. It purifies them. It starts a fire. It begins to change them. What else does the Holy Spirit do? Well, notice what a visible event this was. This wasn't hidden away in a room somewhere. This didn't happen out in the desert. This happened in the middle of Jerusalem with all these witnesses, and everyone heard. There was an uproar. People thought there was a party. They were getting drunk. The Holy Spirit is a public witness to who you are. It is God saying, this one and these belong to me. They are now mine. And nothing in heaven and earth is ever going to take them out of my hand. It is the creation of a church that is unstoppable. The Bible says that the gates of hell cannot prevail against the Christian church. It is a promise that the church will never fail. And no matter how long it takes or where the church goes, it will prevail. Because the power of the Spirit is publicly witnessed in Christian churches. It makes things holy. The original word holy means to set apart for God's purpose. That is, to take up a mundane or ordinary person or thing and set it apart for God's use alone. To carry out his will and purpose in the world. So that's what the apostles became. Instruments of God's will in the world. Empowered by him, set apart by him. Set apart for what? To advance God's kingdom. To witness to the world the mega deeds of Jesus Christ. His life and ministry. His miracles. His death. His triumph over death and his resurrection. That was the job of the early church. It still is the job. To witness the gospel, the good news. And why is it good news? Because to a world that is filled with pain and war and disease and suffering, that is filled with conflict, that is filled with greedy people taking advantage of uh, other people, filled with people who are poor and are made poorer by the structures of the world, the gospel comes in and says, there's a new king in town. There is a new power in the world. And when you claim it, it is going to transform you and your families and your communities and your towns and your cities and your countries and your cultures. Because this is the power of God. It is hope. It is a promise that things are not going to be the way they were. And that's why it's good news. So this is a personal implication for all of us. This wasn't just a message back then or in history. It's a re message right now to each of us. If you've been baptized, and I think perhaps most people in this room have been baptized, you have two identities. You have a worldly identity, like everybody else in the world, that defines you by your choices, 
your desires, your habits, your cravings, by patterns of life before you met Christ. And it's there. It's there in me. I feel it all the time. But now you also have a second identity at exactly the same time. A spiritual identity. An identity as a child of God, beloved, for all time. A sanctified identity, that is a holy identity. And every moment, every minute, every hour, every second of your life, you are confronted with choices. And you will act either out of your worldly identity or out of your sanctified, baptized, holy Christian identity. And those different choices will produce different lives. Every moment, every second, every minute. You will either move in the direction of becoming more Christ-like, with more elements of your life united unto him, or you will move in the other direction. And to be a Christian is to be given that chance, that opportunity, to move towards God. Nobody does it naturally. It requires the power of the Holy Spirit. And over time, over seconds and minutes and hours and months and years, you become a different person. You become more Christ-like. You have different friends. Your career will take a different trajectory. Your cravings and desires will change. You will be given the opportunity to live more and more in that new identity, that Christian identity. And by the way, you better practice because the day you die, that old identity will die. And all that you will have is your new spiritual identity in Christ. That's all that survives. You better expand it. Make it big and beautiful because you're going to spend eternity in it. That is happening to each of us right now. Our friends, our careers, our hopes, our dreams, the things that we spend our money on, the plans that we make, everything depends on whether you are making decisions based on your Christian identity or your worldly identity. And you will see it, by the way, in your relationships. And if that sounds scary, and it should, the stakes are high, remember that Jesus also says that the Holy Spirit is a counselor. He will guide you. He will even pray for you when you forget to. He will bring people into your life. He will open doors. He will put opportunities that allow you to grow, that allow you to become this new creation, to be born again to become more Christ-like. So the Holy Spirit claims and illuminates our life, but he also sets us apart so that we become instruments of his will. Now this is a little complicated because many of us would find it difficult to point to the place in our life that is so, dis- is so different. But remember, it is a Holy Spirit that is at work in you. 
if you've been baptized. And you will do God's will, even kicking and screaming. Even when you fight it. Even when you are at your worst. There was a remarkable and powerful story you should read in, in the Bible. It's in Genesis. And it's the story of Joseph. Joseph is beloved by his father, but his other brothers don't like him. They think that uh, he's usurping the love of their father. So his other brothers get together, and they come up with a plan to kill him. They throw him into a pit, but they can't, they can't get themselves to actually kill him. So what they do is they sell him to slavery. And he goes off to, G to Egypt and is lost, and his father is desolate. But God does a remarkable thing with Joseph in Egypt. He speaks to him. He takes care of him and he protects him until Joseph becomes the second more, most powerful man in Egypt, the right hand of Pharaoh. And God tells Joseph there are going to be some years of famine. Protect the people by storing food. And so Joseph manages the economy of Egypt so that he collects a vast storehouse of food. And then when the famine comes, he can feed the people. What's remarkable is this famine is so bad that it affects Joseph's brother's brother and his father back in Israel. And at a certain point, they come begging to Pharaoh. They, they think their brother is dead by now. They come begging to Pharaoh for food because they're going to starve. And there's this lovely moment when they realize that the right-hand man of Pharaoh is their brother, the one they sold to slavery. And they're terrified. They think he's going to punish them. And then this happens. This is Genesis 50. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and for your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. The guilt of that day must have lived with them most of their adult life. Selling your little brother to slavery. I mean, how do you live with that? How do you forgive yourself for doing that? They must have thought they had done something so wicked, they were beyond or they were outside God's love and God's will. But of course they weren't. Because God is omnipotent. Because God's will will be done. Because God's kingdom is advancing. And no matter what we do, our very best or our very worst, God is going to use it to carry out his plan for the world. Because he's made us holy. That is, set apart for his purpose. You cannot screw up God's plan for your life, or for your family, or for the world. He sits on his throne, and it is unfolding just as it should, on the exact timetable it should be on. And we have nothing to be afraid of. We've just got to remember the basics. To witness the one who has saved us, who has given us his spirit.
to share those mega deeds, to advance the kingdom, to pray, Thy will, not my will, be done, to seek to glorify Him and not make a name for ourselves. A final thought. When the Holy Spirit shows up, there's fire because there's judgment, there's re re refining. When I baptized Doris last week, why didn't she just blow up when I put holy water on her? Why don't our children explode when we baptize them? I mean, we are washing them with the Holy Spirit. Why don't they burn? Why don't they scream and moan? Why don't we scream and moan if we are filled with a Holy Spirit that cannot tolerate sin? Aren't we like straw man filled with fire? Aren't we like snowmen trying to embrace the sun? How is it possible? Well, the table is a reminder. We are not alone. Jesus Christ sent his Holy Spirit because he had already gone to the cross. And on the cross, he took upon himself, he exchanged with us all our sin, all our ugliness, all our darkness, took it onto himself and felt the weight of God's wrath on that sin. Almost destroyed him. He died. The cross is the only place in the Bible where Jesus Christ refers to God, not as his father, but as the God who has forsaken him. He paid the price of the sin. He was the one that burned so that we don't have to. And therefore, when we put our faith in him, when we eat of his body and drink of his blood, what we are doing is exchanging our ugliness for his beauty. It is the reason that his spirit can dwell in us now without harming us. It is the reason that we can go to God's table and meet him face to face without dying. Because Jesus paid the price. That was the mega deed that has changed everything for us. You know, I've noticed through the years that people that I have conflict with, this happened particularly at seminary, which was filled with theological conflicts and, and people upset with each other. There was one moment when we were all one, and it was when we went to the table and received the Lord's Supper together. Because it was the one place where we were reminded why we were Christians. Because of the beautiful thing that Jesus does for each of us. The gift that we receive when we go to the table. The reminder that we are held in God's hands forever because Christ was willing to be cast out. It's a love affair. It is recognizing what Jesus has done that would make us want to do, to do God's will. That would make us want to change and become like him. We're going to come to this table right now. And as we do, I want you to think about that. What has Jesus Christ done for you personally? What are the mega deeds that you have seen and witnessed? Why is it that you're here this morning coming to his table again? Remind yourself of that. Embrace it. Celebrate it. And share it with others. That's our job and our purpose.
That is the Christian church in action. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your gift of the Holy Spirit. A spirit that claims us as yours. A spirit that counsels and reassures us that we are yours. A spirit that reminds us of what Christ has done to make us family. Lord, as we come to the table this morning, fill us afresh. Fill us with wonder and thanks and love for you. Remind us, Lord, what you have done for us in the past. And Lord, fill our spirits with energy and power to go out into the world and share your gospel. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.